0: Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Uh, Pastor Robin uh, mentioned uh, some prayer requests in his prayer this morning, and just wanted to share a little more with you as a family of God. Um, Larry and Hen sit right down front here in the first service, and uh, this week, last Tuesday morning, Larry found his 31-year-old son, who lives in a kind of a mother-in-law apartment with them, had passed on. And uh, so it was a pretty, uh, pretty rough week for Larry and Hen. Kids are supposed to outlive their parents. And uh, so uh, let me encourage you to remember them in prayer. Also, Sue, um, uh, Leonardi's uh, dad passed away, and she just lost her mom. Um, last month, I believe it was. So we want to remember uh, them in prayer uh, as well. And then this afternoon, uh, we have a service for Jan Anderson at two o'clock in the Little White Church. Uh, if you're part of the North Sound family, I know Jan, you're welcome to uh, welcome to join us uh, for that time. I have a slide of our work in India and. Uh, We try to be careful about what we say because this service is recorded and available on the internet. But we are uh, blessed to be engaged in the work with our friends uh, there in India and wanted to give you a quick update. Um, The work that we've been doing with them had got put on pause a bit over COVID time and now is uh, rapidly re-engaging in the mission that we have shared with you, that we're engaged with them together. And so uh, we are encouraged uh, about that as well. Well, some of you have commented on uh, the fact that the beard is no longer there. (laughs) And uh, men, I I don't know how this works for you in, in your house, but I was under the impression that my wife did not like my beard. So this week I shaved it off, and then she said, oh, I like your beard. <laughs> I, I don't know about women. I, I... <sighs> Thank you, dear. Uh-oh. <laughs> Could be a long week now, guys. We are going to continue our series, Journey to the Cross. We're going to talk about truth today, and once again, this is an expository sermon, which means uh, please get your Bibles out and follow along. So there are Bible apps for your phone. Uh, If you want to use that, you're welcome to do so. You can also uh, just Google the chapter, which is John chapter 9, if you don't have a Bible app, and uh, for the the Luddites among us. Uh, There are Bibles uh, somewhere probably in the row ahead of you uh, underneath the the chair. So we're going to talk about uh, truth today as it relates to this particular story. So from John chapter 9, we're going to look at three different things. The first one is why bad things sometimes happen to good people. Chapter 9 and verse 1, as he passed by He saw a man blind from birth, and the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples assumed that somebody had had to have done something bad in order to have this particular outcome. There were Jews. These were Jews. The disciples were Jews. They knew the Old Testament, and in the Old Testament, There was some reason to believe that this might be a result of sin. Numbers 14. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgressions, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So they presumed the blindness might be caused by the parents, their sin, therefore their child was born blind, or that the child himself was guilty of sin. And, uh, in in preparing a sermon, I couldn't figure out initially how could how could a baby, an innocent baby, um, be responsible for sin for his own outcome? Well, apparently, some Jews believe that in the preexistence of the soul, and so in in a previous existence of the soul of this little one, perhaps um, he had done something that resulted in this. But it's uh It's an interesting and and quite a deeply troubling thought, actually. I remember when I was in the sixth grade, my parents had very strong feelings about the Sabbath, which, although it's technically on Saturday, we applied to the Lord's Day to Sunday. And, uh, Wes, you'll remember the Beldies next door when I was just a little guy, because we moved to Canada when I was seven. Sunday afternoon, I had to have a nap, and just about the time I laid down for my nap, they would fire up their go-kart next door. Every seven-year-old kid wants to drive a go-kart, right? And it was just miserable. It was punishment to have to lay down for that Sunday afternoon nap. But more serious, when I was in the sixth grade, I can remember going to play baseball on a Sunday And I just got overwhelmed with guilt because I was playing ball on a Sunday and I would displease my parents and God. And uh, so when I came home, I explained to mom that I had played baseball and now was God going to punish me by having me play really poorly when I actually played with my team. It's kind of the way my, you know, my mind was, my mind was working and that that's the way that God was going to, uh, God was going to deal with me. So, now having had the privilege of studying theology and the Bible for a few years, I have found that I still have this perspective of the disciples' hard to shake. I still have this sense at times that if I do something wrong, God's going to get me if I sin, that that somewhere out there God is watching and watching and then we're going to get zapped, right? Because it's just God catching up with us in this way. Somehow the disciples, and sometimes me, <laughs> and maybe some of you, miss the fact that this isn't really what the Scripture says. So we come down to Ezekiel 33, 14 and... We see that even in the Old Testament, there's an understanding of the grace of God. Ezekiel thirty-three, fourteen. again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about John 3, and in John 3, we said, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And the fact of the matter is clear biblical teaching is that we live under God's grace and that he took our sin to the cross and that God is not sitting there waiting to zap us for stepping out of line in any way, that in fact our sin, our failure, our reproach has been taken on him and all we need to do is to recognize, to confess, to repent and allow Him to take on Him our guilt and our sin. We have no need to carry that, to live with that. And so, friends, if if you have lived like me at all, carrying that guilt of sin, my encouragement is to let it go to the cross and live in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is true that there are natural consequences to sin. If one were to say, engage in an affair outside of their marriage, one of the natural consequences might be the end of that marriage. There are consequences to the choices that we make, but important thing is to know that we have received God's grace, his deliverance, and then we in turn bring healing and hope to those around us as part of God's kingdom coming and his will being done Jesus makes it clear that there are reasons for suffering that are beyond a simple calculus of sin. Verse 3 of our passage, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So there's no question that Jesus' miracles drew people to him. And when the people were drawn to him, Jesus talked about light and darkness, including our passage where he says he's to be the light of the world and to do the works of the kingdom. And we're supposed to join him that. We're supposed to be the light of the world. We're supposed to join him in the work of the kingdom. And the work of the kingdom, the works that he does are where we have God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. What's God's will? Well, we find it in the scriptures. Second thing I want us to see in our passage is something about why we're afraid to speak the truth. Why are we afraid to speak the truth? The next few verses, the man's neighbor, see the man was now seeing, formerly having been blind, and they take him to the Pharisees. It makes perfect sense because this was a miracle. Everybody knew this guy was blind from birth. Now he sees, so it's a miraculous thing. It must surely have happened from God, and so they they take him to the Pharisees to show them the miraculous work that God has done. Verse 18, we see that the Pharisees, instead of celebrating, this is a wonderful work of God. They focus in on the, the Sabbath, and somehow that healing on the Sabbath, Jesus has broken the law. Verse 18: The Jews did not believe that he had been blind, that he who had been blind had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son? Who you say was born blind how then does he now see his parents answered we know that this is our son and that he was born blind but now uh, but how he sees we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes ask him he is of age he will speak for himself and then a critical verse his parents said these things because they feared the jews for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore the parents said, He is of age, ask him. The critical verse here is verse 22, and it says, he, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. I wonder how many times in our relationships, in our communities, we fear to speak the truth because we don't want what we know will be the effect of us speaking the truth into the lives of those around us in our community. I don't know how many of you saw the fiasco that happened a little over a week ago at Stanford University Law School, but the Federalist Society had invited a federal judge to come and speak, and the federal judge was greeted by many more protesters than students in the Federalist Society. They lined the hallway at the Stanford Law School, and they had crude and vulgar signs that they greeted him with. He went down the gauntlet of the hallway and into the law school classroom in order to speak to these students. And when he tried to open his mouth to share what he had been invited to share, they shouted him down and shouted him down and kept doing so. So he finally asked for an administrator to come and restore order in the room. But the administrator, instead of coming in to restore order, came in and with her own prepared remarks, because she knew what was going to happen, took him on and told him how terrible the decisions that he had made as a federal judge were to people. He ended up essentially having to not complete the lecture that he had come there to do. Someone described it this way. They said, this is one of the best law schools in the world. The students are the cream of the crop, the future judges, senators, presidents, and leaders of the industry. And yet here is a mob of the best and brightest shouting down a federal judge who's been invited to campus and thereby demonstrating that they don't have the foggiest grasp of the basic concept of legal discourse. You have to meet reason with reason Instead, their operating principle is, if I don't like what you say or think, I will silence you. It seems many of us are afraid to speak the truth. Last year, when Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court, our city council decided that they were going to have a resolution in support of abortion. (laughs) And i have been engaged in various ways in the city and with city council members. And so I contacted them, and I also wrote an opinion piece in my Edmunds News. And what I said was that there are in our community a large number of people who are pro-life, and there are a large number of people in our community who are pro-abortion. But it wasn't the role of city council that deals with the administration of our city to pass resolutions about something at the national level. And when they do that sort of thing, which isn't a part of their mandate, when they do that, they willfully choose to offend those of us that have a different perspective on the subject and unnecessarily so. I knew in doing the opinion piece that there would be feedback that speaking the truth would have consequences. One of the persons who responded said, you came here in 2003. You should have known this community better. The Edmonds Council is not out of touch or out of line. You are. There's almost a veiled threat of stomping tantrum implying you'll take your money and go elsewhere. Please do. So their response of this particular reader was... If I don't like what you have to say and I don't like your perspective, the best thing for you to do is get out of town. It's a wonder we're afraid to speak the truth. I think this creates a culture where if we don't go with the woke crowd, we should not speak up. Who wants to take verbal abuse for expressing an opinion? But friends, I believe the truth, the truth, will ultimately prevail. The blind man who now sees said this, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that although I was blind, now I see. The truth, I was blind, and now I see, no matter what these religious leaders are making of this. The truth is, I was blind, and now I see. He spoke the truth. He affirmed reality. He articulated simple reason. His life was radically transformed. He was blind, and now he can see. The formerly blind man's words are powerful. He knows what he knows, and he knows what he doesn't know. He doesn't know much about Jesus, but he knows he was blind, and now he sees. Reminded of the words of John Newton, the former slave trader who came into a relationship with Jesus Christ who wrote these words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. If you know the words, say it with me. Was blind, but now I see. Friends, the world cannot argue with the power of the gospel to transform lives. This week I was chatting with Dan and Kim Eagle, Dan and Jan, you may be watching from San Diego. And it was such a joy to hear what God is doing in their lives and to know a little more of the story of a couple that were just nominally connected to their faith who came into a relationship at North Sound Church with the North Sound family family. And their lives became radically transformed. And now they're engaged in serving people as far away as Ecuador in South America. The third and final thing I want to share this morning is that I think we need to beware of power. We need to be aware of power. There's a warning for us in this passage, verse 28. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. These are the Pharisees speaking, the religious leaders. The man answered, why, this is amazing. This is a presumably somewhat ignorant blind man, probably didn't have an opportunity to learn, given his condition, but he takes on, he takes on these leaders He said, why, this is amazing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it heard of anyone opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And now back to the Pharisees. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. In other words, you're despicable. And you would teach us, and they cast him out. And they cast him out. These were the religious leaders, and they had the power to cast him out. They used it not only on this poor man, but later they used the power to cast out on Jesus Christ himself, and they sent him to the cross. So what's the warning for us here in the 21st century in 2023. I think it's just this. I think the warning is that, as Lord Acton said many years ago, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. As followers of Jesus, we have to be so very careful about the consequences of leveraging power to project our will onto other people. Jesus came to earth as a baby in a manger. There was no power there. Instead of going to the cross, he could have called 10,000 angels to come and deliver him, but he humbly went to the cross. He chose to lay down his power. The early church had no power, certainly no political power, but really not much power of any kind. What we find in the early church is that for the first 300 years, there were almost no buildings because they didn't have financial resources. They had no engagement with politics. In fact, they were persecuted as early believers in different places at different times. But an amazing thing happened for a group of people that had no power, and that is that by 300 AD, those who have studied it, some of them believe that by that time, half the Roman Empire had become followers of Jesus Christ, amazing without power why why did that rapid growth happen no power rapid growth i believe the reason is when we look at that history of that period was that they lived fundamentally different lives than their neighbors they looked different than their neighbors and their neighbors wanted to be like them because of the lives they lived one of the characteristics of the early church of the early Christians was their humility. They were willing to consider that they might be blind about some things. Paul addresses blindness in almost every chapter of first corinthians i 'm amazed that some people uh, some churches would would name their church the Corinthian church or the first baptist church the the the, the uh, the Corinthians Baptist Church. I'm amazed at that because the Corinthian church was such a mess. I, I would not want to name my church after the Corinthian church. As you go through it, almost every chapter has some kind of a failure that Paul has to address in the midst of it. But in the midst of that, what is really interesting is that when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, in the midst of this mess, he gives this most beautiful description to these people of how they need to live their lives. And it begins with the words, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. I'm a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Wow. Wow. And and yet, something seems wrong today about the perceptions that others have of us. What we would want to see some 2,000 years hence would be the same thing happening, that people are drawn to us as followers of Jesus Christ because of the kind of lives we live they would want to be like us. But friends, we don't see that. Something's wrong with the perception that people have of people like us. We'll call us, broadly speaking, evangelicals because of what we believe. But we're not known today for our love. Friends, there are many kinds of blindness. Obviously, our text begins with physical blindness, but the metaphor doesn't say there. Remember in Ray Stevens' song, when some of us were much younger, everything is beautiful includes the line, there is none so blind as he who will not see. You may have seen the image uh, that Liz is gonna put up on the screen. Have a quick look at that. How many of you see a rabbit? How many of you see a duck? How many of you see both of them now? Okay. It's the, power, it's the power of a worldview. I have no idea when you first see it why some of us see a rabbit and some of us see a duck. But the point is is that our worldview influences how we establish the facts We call it a confirmation bias. We have a worldview, and then we want to fit the facts into what we have already predetermined, and we have to be so careful with that. In America, in the 21st century, evangelical Christians exercise power. But as Lord Acton said and as the Pharisees in our text text show us, the application of power is incredibly dangerous. The fact is that many of our fellow citizens, instead of wanting to be like us, are repelled by us. Kate Shelnut in Christianity Today, just this week, summarized the recent Pew Research Report with these words. This is the summary title, Evangelicals are the most beloved U.S. faith group among evangelicals and among the worst rated by everybody else. This is her summary. She says, in the recently released Pew report, evangelicals' critical reception wasn't the result of a lack of familiarity. Nearly two-thirds of Americans say they personally know someone who is an evangelical Christian, a number that's held steady since 2019. She goes on to say, well, those who know an evangelical Christian are more likely than those who do not to express a positive view. They are also slightly more likely than those who do not personally know an evangelical Christian to express a negative view of evangelicals, namely 35%. So 35% of our neighbors do not have a positive perspective on who we are. Now, we can dismiss that, and we can say that they're just woke liberals, uh, that we are speaking for truth, and they don't like it. But what if some of the problem is actually with us? What if some of the problem is actually with us? Where do we go wrong? Instead of looking so much like Jesus that people want to be like us, We are seen as those thirsting for power and wishing to impose our will on others. Perhaps we should return to our roots. Paul instructs not only the early Christians, but every one of us with these words when he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, lest your speech, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Friends, this doesn't mean that we're not, as followers of Jesus, actively engaged for the good of our nation, politically or otherwise, but it does mean that politics is not the deepest expression of our faith and that wielding power in this way can have many unintended consequences. However we engage, we need to remember our first love. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul reminds us of what's important. He says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. As elders, we have been talking recently about what it would look like for us as a community of faith, as a church, to begin to move back toward those first few centuries and for us together to build the kind of community and the kind of discipleship individually that would cause us to be the kind of people that other people might want to be like. The world may disagree with our pro-life stance, They may disagree with our support of a traditional understanding of human sexuality. But is it possible we can live in such a way that they might still want to be like us? What would that take? Look again at Paul's words. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. We have such a reasonable faith. The Christian worldview is absolutely amazing. There's nothing like it. There's no other religion that is anything like the beauty of the Christian perspective. It's truly beautiful. We need to do a better job of communicating just how reasonable the Christian worldview really is. Paul goes on to say, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So friends, our speech reflects our thoughts and our thoughts reflect who we are. And who we are are to be people who have the mind of Christ. This means here that we don't just choose our words carefully. We don't just choose our words carefully, but in fact, We see our character actually changing. We're attractive to others because of what flows out of our mouths, because of how we live our lives. We live like Jesus, and the process is lifelong discipleship. We can't just try harder to be different. We really need to be different. Last fall, I shared with you in a sermon about Michael Gerson, he was... Recruited out of Wheaton College by Chuck Colson to come and work for Prison Fellowship. And not too long afterwards, he was brought on to staff in the White House by George W. Bush to be a speechwriter for him. His life was not easy. He struggled with major health issues, including depression. Peter Weiner gives us some background. He said, very few people knew the full scope of the health challenges Mike faced. He suffered a heart attack in 2004 when he was 40, kidney cancer in 2013, debilitating leg pain, probably the result of surgical nerve damage. The kidney cancer spread to his lungs, then Parkinson's disease and metastatic adrenal cancer. And finally, metatastic bone cancer in multiple locations. Intensely painful. At one point, he told me he was on 20 different medications. Mike and I joked that of all of the characters in the Bible, the one that he should model himself after was Job. You get an idea of what kind of man Mike was when he wrote about dropping his son off at college. His son, he realized, may have some anxiety about leaving home, but Mike writes this. He says, with due respect to my son's feelings, I have the worst of it. I know something he doesn't, not quite a secret, but incomprehensible to the young. He is experiencing the adjustments that come with beginnings. His life is starting for real, and I have begun the long letting go. Put another way, he has a wonderful future in which my part naturally diminishes. I have no possible future that is better without him close. I remembered so well in my own experience when we took our oldest to SeaTac Airport to do a study abroad course in Italy, and for the first time in our lives, he was beyond dad's immediate reach should anything go wrong, and It affected me significantly emotionally. Michael put it so well in his own description. So Michael died at the young age of 58 last November. Just a couple of months before his death, he wrote an opinion piece in September. He expressed his dismay with the current state of evangelical Christians, and he went back to the life of Jesus to describe what we should be, He said that if we're to recover our role, we would need to experience an outbreak of discipleship. (laughs) After COVID, does not that a beautiful expression, an outbreak of discipleship. And I conclude with a rather long quotation from Mike from this that was given just a couple of months before his passing so young. And yet, Words, I believe, are so important. He says, what might an outbreak of discipleship look like? It would not bring victory for one ideological side or to one policy agenda. Christ did not deliver a manifesto or provide a briefing book. He called human beings to live generously, honestly, kindly, and faithfully. Following this way, which the apostle Paul later called the way, is not primarily a political choice, but it has unavoidable public consequences. Imagine if today's believers were to live out the full implications of their faith. Instead of fighting for narrow advantage, they would express their love of neighbor by seeking the common good and rejecting a view of greatness that makes others small. Instead of being entirely captive to their cultural background, they would have enough critical distance to sort the good from the bad, the gold from the sand. This might leave them uncomfortable with their own tribe or their own skin, but the moral landscape is often easier to see from the periphery. Instead of being ruled by anger and fear, they would live lightly, free from grudges, and ready to offer forgiveness, thus preserving the possibility of future reconciliation and concord. Instead of turning to violence in word or deed, they would assert the power of unarmed truth They would engage in argument without slander or threats, demonstrating not wokeness or weakness, but due regard for our shared dignity.